The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Appreciate you being here this morning. We're continuing this morning our study of 1 John. And again, I want to remind you that the theme of this book is fellowship. That's what John wants to do. He wants the believers he's writing to to enter into the fellowship that the apostolic circle has with God and with them. He wants them to have fellowship. This is not a test of salvation. He's talking about fellowship. Now, we're going to be finishing chapter 4 today which I'm like, uh uh-oh, coming to the end of a book. Okay, I'm definitely going to do 2nd and 3rd John when I finish that. But where from there, I'm not sure. Now, let me tell you what I'm thinking. So you can give me, I want some feedback here, people. Um, No, it won't be a whole year. (laughs) It won't be that long. I am strongly considering, after I do 2nd and 3rd John, to stick with John and move into the book of Revelation. Okay, so, but I'm just, I don't know, Um, you know, I don't know how practical that is, it's interesting, it'll be fun, but I don't know how practical it is, so I'd like your feedback, just let me know what you think, if that, you'd be interested in something like that, and uh, maybe I will, maybe I won't, okay? (laughs) All right, the overarching theme of verses 7 through 21 is that of loving one another. And that is the mark, he says, of those who are abiding in Christ. If you're abiding, you're going to be loving. And when we talk about abiding, we've gone over this a lot in this epistle, but I want you to understand this. Abiding means to, first of all, that you're spending time in the Word of God. You cannot abide in Christ if you're not spending time in the Word of God. Not going to happen. Okay? And it means you're not only spending time in it, you're obeying it. You're living as Christ would live. You see Him in the Gospels, this is how He lived. You're living as He lived. You're loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. Abiding in Him is the same as uh, Paul would say in Ephesians, walking in the Spirit. It's having fellowship with Christ. It's what Jude calls keeping yourselves in the love of God. It's having a close, intimate relationship with God. Alright, so let's back up a little bit and kind of get a running start here on our verses that we're going to look at today. Back in verse 8, he says, anyone who does not love God, Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, many people want to take this verse and say, if you don't love, you're not a Christian. That is not what John is saying. He's not saying you're not a Christian. He said, if you don't love, you're not abiding. Knowing God is a synonym for abiding for John. In John's mind, there may be Christians who are not abiding. They're not at the present moment in fellowship with the Father. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to encourage his readers to be in fellowship. He's not writing to his adversaries. He's writing to little children. And he wants them to have fellowship with God. And so I think we can understand that such fellowship is not automatic. Okay? It's not like you get saved, I'm on autopilot, I'm just going to be in fellowship. No. If you're not working at your Christian life, yeah, the second law of thermodynamics will take over and entropy will happen. You will you know, degrade spiritually. All right. This is the burden of this whole letter, is fellowship. He wants us to just be in this fellowship with the Father. He wants to teach us how to abide. 
He says in verse 12, no one has ever seen God. Now, we talked about this because it's kind of weird. This whole section's about love. And he says, by the way, no one's ever seen God. Oh, that's nice. What does that have to do with love, John? Okay. What does the invisibility of God have to do with love? Do you remember what I said? John continues in verse 12, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, what does that mean? What John is saying here, and this is extremely significant, people. He means that the unseen God, who was historically revealed in the incarnation of His Son, the unseen God is now revealed by the indwelling presence of His Holy Spirit in His people when they love one another. So he said God's invisible, but the world can see Him when believers love one another. That's how important loving one another is, people. As believers love one another, we make the invisible God visible to the world. That should tell us how important love is. That's an amazing thought. Because people don't see God. And they may not read their Bible, but they will see God when Christians love one another as we are called to do. John is saying that mutual Christian love manifests the presence and action of the invisible God. Now, by saying that, and as strong as that statement is, that hopefully it helps you understand that when we're talking about loving God, we're not talking about you know just being sweet and nice. Okay, oh look, they're nice. I can see God in them. No, it's much. It's sacrificial giving to one another, ministering to each other, meeting needs, and especially sacrificially. John is saying that the unseen God becomes seen in the love of believers. When we love as we should, His love is perfected in us, it says. And that reveals that we are abiding in Him and He is abiding in us. Our love is evidence of His indwelling presence because you can't love like this apart from God. You can't do it. It's not something that will happen in your flesh. Now in John 4.14, John speaks about their fellowship with the apostolic circle and what they had seen. Then in verse 15, he talks about their fellowship with the apostolic circle and what they had heard. And John is saying that the visible manifestation of Christian love, accompanied by this confession of Yeshua, reproduced what the apostolic circle had seen when Christ was living with them. So we could say that John's goal of leading his readers into the kind of fellowship with the apostolic circle that he talked about in John 1, 1-3, has been reached. See, John's point, was that his readers had personally seen God in a similar way to how the apostles had seen Him. They saw Him physically. They lived with Him. God had revealed His love to the apostles through Yeshua. Well, the readers had seen God and they had seen Him in the Spirit indwelt, abiding believers who were loving one another. They were having the same experience that the apostles had of seeing God and it was through that love. Now, we ended last time with this verse, and I think this verse should be divided this way. The stuff in the yellow there is, goes with the previous section. The rest goes with the, the section afterwards. He says, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. He concludes with these words, we have come to know and believe. He uses a verb here, the tense is a perfect tense, and that means we have come to know and believe in the past with the continuing results in the present and the future. We knew, we still know. 
The love that God had for us is a present, active, indicative, expressing God's continuing love. Now, John's use of the first person plural pronoun here, we, is inclusive. He's talking about the author himself. He's talking about the readers. He's talking about all Christians as contrasted to the opponents. We have come to know and believe the love. Believers have. Now, it's debated among scholars whether 16b should be seen as the beginning of a new paragraph, but that's how I'm taking it. So we're starting a new paragraph with B, and it starts out again, God is love. He's already talked about this, and we spent a whole message dealing with this back in verse 8. I'm not going to go back over that. I'm going to leave you to that and move on. But before we move on, I wanted to share with you something that Colin Krauss has to say on this idea of God is love. He says this, he says, This is not intended to be an ontological statement describing what God in His essence, what God is in His essence, but rather a statement about the loving nature of God revealed in His saving action on behalf of mankind. I like Krauss. I think he's got some good stuff to say, but I don't think he's right here. Okay? When he says this is not intended, and, well, we could be splitting hairs here, but I think the fact that God is love is an ontological statement. Okay, it is telling us it is describing God in his essence. But I think he's also right here in this context. He's using that not as an ontological statement, but to tell us about God's saving love for us. Okay, so take that as you will. All right. He says, whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. This is really kind of a restatement of what he said in verse 13. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us. This mutual abiding, this mutual indwelling of God and the believer. Because God is love, the author can assure his readers that whoever lives in love lives in God and God lives in him. Love comes from God who is love. Hence, those who live in love show that they live in love by loving others. Love for others and living in fellowship with God are really inseparable people. You cannot be in fellowship with God and not love others. And like I said, these, John just keeps cycling through this things throughout this epistle over and over because he wants his readers to get it. This is kind of a restatement of verse 12 where he says, if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. So he is stressing this idea of mutual abiding, God in us, us in Him, loving one another. Then in verse 17 he says, by this is love perfected with us. Now if you're listening to Anthony read this morning, what Version where you're reading from, Anthony? CSV, okay. All right, yeah, it says love is complete. That's a good translation. Okay, we'll talk about that in a minute here. But by this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as He is, so are we in this world. Now, by this refers back to verse 16. He says, God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God and God in Him. By this, by this mutual abiding, love is perfected in us, he says. It's perfect. Now, the ESV here says perfected with us. The Greek preposition there is meta. And some, some translations put in us, some put among us, some put with us. Okay? The idea that the love is perfected I think among us is a good translation. Now, love being perfected here. John first used this phrase in 2.5 where he said, Whosoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. 
He used it in 4.12, if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Now in 4.13-16, through 16, John elaborates on the first part of that statement, repeating the concept of God's abiding in us and we in Him three times. And now, in verses 17 and 18, he goes over it three times again about this concept of perfect love. Well, what does he mean by perfect love? The Greek word translated perfect doesn't mean, as in English, no flaws, no shortcomings. We love perfectly. It's just it. We're just perfect in our love. No. It's the idea of complete development or intended goal or maturity. So when John talks about God's love being perfected, he means his love has reached its intended goal in our lives. Perfected love is the love of God expressing itself in our love for one another. So when we are loving others as God intended us to, God's love is matured in us. It's reached the goal. Now the entire phrase, love perfected with us, refers to what happens when believers love one another. That's the goal. The love that comes from God, the love that He has for us, reaches perfection in our love for others. Which is what He wants believers to do. Which is what He commands us to do. It reaches the intended goal when it flows from God to us, to others. Alright? It just keeps... It's completed. It's perfected. It's got to be extended to others. Now, the result of this perfect love is that it gives us confidence, he says, in the day of judgment. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Now, John is saying that when the believers see God's love flowing through them to other people in sacrificial deeds, it's our basis for confidence before judgment. Before the judgment of God, we have confidence because I am living in love, therefore I am abiding in Christ. I am in fellowship with God. I have confidence. This is the Greek word parasia. It means courage, confidence, Boldness. I like boldness. That's a good translation. Fearlessness. And listen, here's what this word means. Especially in the presence of persons of high rank. So you have confidence. The idea here, it it means the idea of freedom of speech is another uh, parasia. Another meaning of parasia. Freedom of speech. John uses this extensively. And it speaks of our boldness in the presence of God or approaching God. If you can understand being bold before God. Okay? That's what it talks about. Now, here's the thing. He says, so we're going to have confidence, we're going to have boldness when? For the day of judgment. Now, from beginning to end, the Bible is clear that there is coming. Coming, from the biblical author's perspective, a day of judgment. Okay? Yeshua spoke often about the judgment to come. Paul, preaching to the philosophers in Athens, declared that God has fixed the day on which He will judge the world. Yeshua said in John 5, Do not marvel at this. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear the voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So he's saying there is a future judgment that is coming. It's coming after the resurrection. It's a judgment of good and evil. Mary knew that the resurrection would occur at the end of the age. The Jewish age. Now the Bible teaches that the resurrection 
the judgment, the second coming are synchronous events. They all happen at the same time. One commentator says this, The day is coming when God will be the judge of all people. That day will be the end of the world as we know it. That's a common belief in Christendom today. It's wrong. And if you believe as most Christians do, if you believe that like most Christians do, then you don't believe the judgment has happened yet. Why? Because the world hasn't ended yet, has it? I hope it hasn't, unless we missed something while we've been in here. Okay. Full preterists believe that the day of judgment happened in AD 70 at the destruction of Jerusalem. Everyone else is looking for a future coming of judgment at the second coming at the resurrection, where they're looking for the future. So who's right? I mean, the preterists or the futurists, the partial preterists, which one's right? Well, let me... Okay, I agree. I agree with that. Let me, let me share with you a couple short video clips here where Doug Wilson warns us of the problems of preterism. So pay attention to this warning. Now listen, I want you to be not critical people. I want you to be critical thinkers. Okay? And when you hear something, everything should be evaluated. Too often we're just like, oh yeah, that sounds good. No, stop and critically think about what you're hearing and then evaluate it. So let's critically think as we listen to this video clip. Excuse me, what preterism is comes from the Latin word for the past, uh, pastism, basically. And uh, preterism uh, is the view that the many of the prophecies of the New Testament, which are typically understood as applying to the future, the end of the world, are actually prophecies that were fulfilled in our past. So, um, so let's say the Apostle John writes the book of Revelation. Most evangelical Christians think that the events of Revelation are yet to be fulfilled in our future. That's called futurism. And a preterist is someone who says, no, no, I think that the book of Revelation was largely fulfilled um, in the first century in John's future, but in our past. So that's the preterist understanding. And the problem with preterism is that it has great explanatory power. That's a problem, right? That's a problem. The problem that I don't know if he understands what the word problem means, okay? Difficulty, all right. The problem with preterism, listen, it has great explanatory power. I kind of that's kind of my goal is to be able to Take the Scriptures and explain them. Understand, what do they mean? You know, that's what we want. We know what the Bible says. Our goal is to try to figure out what does it mean by what it says. We want to explain stuff. And so my question here to Doug is, how is great explanatory power a problem? Well, he's going to tell us. Go on, Doug. explains a lot of passages very well. This generation will not pass away until all these things are fulfilled. Well... That Jesus said this generation, the one he was in, it has the explanatory power. It explains all the passages that say uh, the time is at hand, uh, the night is almost past, the Lord is at the door. The, you know, uh, this the sense of the imminent return of Jesus uh, in the New Testament. Preterism explains very nicely. Uh, the problem with preterism is that when you first, when you find a, when you buy a new hammer, everything looks like a nail. And because it has a great explanatory power with many passages, 
passages, and it really does. Some people have adopted what uh, some call full preterism or consistent preterism and what opponents would call hyperpreterism. And that is the view that says all of the prophecies of, uh, of the New Testament were fulfilled in the first century, which means there's no resurrection of, of the dead in our, in our future. Okay, so he says that this great explanatory power is a problem because it becomes a hammer. And when you get a new hammer, I guess everything looks like a nail. Well, to me, the nails are the prophetic passages. And so if I got a hammer, I want it to hit every nail. Now, I'm not making up nails, but the prophetic passages are to be, you know, because preterism has great explanatory power, it's explaining those passages. And don't we want to explain all the eschatological passages, or we just want to explain some of them? See, preterism has great explanatory power, but we don't want to use it on passages that we like for the future. So let's leave those alone, okay? Let's not get to those. Now, he says that preterism means that there's no resurrection of the dead in our future. Okay, I agree with him there. But look with me at what Paul says at his trial before Felix. Paul makes this defense. He's giving a defense, and he says this. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Now, Paul is speaking to people in the first century, and he says there will be a resurrection. Now, it's easy to miss here because of the language, but let me show you Young's literal here. There is about to be a resurrection from the dead. See, the word will be in the ESV is the Greek word mellow. We talked about mellow last week. Whenever mellow in the present active indicative is combined with an infinitive, it is consistently translated about to be, about to happen. Paul told the first century audience that he's talking to, there is about to be a resurrection. Now, if we're going to understand what Paul is saying about the resurrection, we need to understand audience relevance. Paul's not talking to us. He's talking to Felix. He's talking to Ananias, Tertullius, and the elders. That's who he's talking to. Paul told him that there is about to be a resurrection, so the timing of the resurrection was soon then. What does that tell us about the nature of the resurrection? See, Wilson wants to argue that, well, the resurrection is in our future, and preterism destroys the nature of it. Well, if the timing was soon, then the nature is spiritual, because time defines nature. If it happened, it wasn't physical people floating up out of the graves like they're looking for. The resurrection was God moving people from Sheol into His presence. It was coming to life. Now, time defines nature. All right, let's go back to Doug one more time, because he's going to kind of give us more of a hammer here on what preterism is. There's no terminus of, uh, of our history. You know, things are just going to go on forever. Now, there are... Um, I, and for my money, I'm a, I would describe myself as a partial preterist. I believe that preterism is a, 
an orthodox biblical way to handle many of the passages. Um, Why, Doug? Why many of them? Now, he's, hopefully he's talking about eschatological passages. That's the context here. We're talking about eschatology, right? Why is it good for many of them? Some things preterism is not good for. I'm not tracking there. Okay, go on, the Doug. full preterism is the shiny hammer that makes everything look like a nail. It, it thinks that because it has great explanatory power here, 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 and here, it explains absolutely everything. Well, the yeah. problem is that it explains you right out of the Orthodox Christian faith. Now, he's going to tell it. Listen, he said it ex- preterism explains us out of the Orthodox Christian faith. Now, what is Orthodox? He's going to tell us here. Because full preterism is not just a uh, debate about the timing of the second coming. It's, uh, it involves other things, like the nature of the resurrection. It body, does. The nature of the last day. The nature, you know, it, it involves things that are much closer to the heart of the gospel. Um, now, the, the historic Christian church, uh, through, through our 2,000 years uh, thus far, has not really come down on eschatology. So the Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, Chalcedon, all the way through, um, uh, you can be an amillennialist, postmillennialist, premillennialist, um, and be an Orthodox Christian. The only eschatological statement that the historic Christian church has ever made is that full preterism is wrong. Uh, because you have in the Apostles' Creed uh, that I believe Jesus Christ who will come to judge the quick and the dead. Jesus will will come in our future uh, to raise the dead, judge the quick and the dead. Well, that is inconsistent with full preterism. And that's the only eschatological position it's inconsistent with. Did you catch that? So preterism has great explanatory power in certain verses. Don't use it on all of them. The problem is, it explains you right out of orthodox, and then he defines orthodox Christian faith as lining up with the creeds. Not the Bible, but the creeds. Now listen to what he said. He said, the only eschatological statement that the historic Christian church has ever made is that full preterism is wrong. Where has the orthodox Christian church ever made that statement? Well, he would say because, and he quoted the Apostles' Creed here, he will come. See, the creed says he will, so it's our future. Well, the creed, where did the creeds get that from? The Bible? They got it from the Apostles saying that, but in the Apostles' time, it was future. He doesn't, Wilson does not know what time it is. Okay? We're not in the same time they were in. The Lord returned. We are in the age to come. He, it, because of the Apostles' Creed, and I just, when he said that, when he said, it says we'll come, that's our future. So he's going to the creeds and he said, we can't be orthodox if we go against these creeds. I got news for him. His partial preterism goes against many things the creeds say. Okay, many things. So this great explanatory power can't be used on passages about the resurrection and the judgment, then I guess. Because it changes the nature. It does change the nature. So we're going to let the Bible change the nature, or are we going to you know, fight for our own view of things? All right. Look at what Paul said in Acts 17.31. He did set a day in which he is about to judge the world in righteousness. Again, Young's. He is about to... 
Paul is talking to people there about to. Now, the words about to here, and will in the ESV, again, the Greek word mellow. Now, let me hammer on mellow for just a second here, okay? Vines exposit... Yeah, get my predator's hammer out, because I see some nails out there, all right? Vines expository dictionary of Greek words on page 1038, Vines shows mellow's primary meaning as to be about to, to be or to do. That's Vines. Thayer's Greek lexicon on page 396 defines mellow as to be about to do anything. To be at the point of doing something. Aren't Gingrich Bowers' Greek-English lexicon defines mellow as be on the point of, be about to. So according to the Greek lexicons, this is not you know, my shiny hammer smacking things that don't belong there. Uh, according to these lexicons, this is what mellow means. So Paul told his first century audience, which were the Athenians, that judgment is about to come. Now, he says this to Timothy. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Yeshua, who is to judge the living and the dead and by His appearing and His kingdom. Now, who is to here is Mello. Paul's again telling his first century readers that Yeshua is about to judge the living and the dead. This will happen at His appearing. Christ's second coming in AD 70 was a coming judgment and it was about to happen. So Paul is saying, I'm telling you, Timothy, preach the word. Why? Because you're going to stand before the judge soon. We're all going to stand before the Lord. We're all going to be there at the Bema seat of Christ, and our lives are going to be evaluated. Paul told his first century audience, That there was about to be a resurrection, there was about to be a judgment. So if the timing of the resurrection and the judgment was soon, what's that tell you about the nature? It's spiritual. It's not a physical thing of being sucked out of the graves. Time defines nature. Preterism does have great explanatory power, and that's not a problem. Okay, It's only a problem if you use it on verses that you don't want it to explain. Okay, or you explain it a different way. All right, back to our text. Let's let's compare two passages here. The passage we're looking at is 4:17, but let's go back to 2:28. And he says, "And now, little children, abide in Him." Okay, verse 17 says, "By this is love perfected." Now we have already seen that love is perfected in those who abide. So he's saying, "Abide, you're perfected." Same thing. He's saying both the same thing both verses. Then he says this. So when He appears, and then in verse 17, for the day of judgment. So the second coming and the judgment are synchronous events, and so he's saying his appearing is the same as the judgment. And then he says this, we're going to have confidence. So if you abide, when he appears, you'll have confidence. If you abide, and as evidenced by the love being perfected in you, you'll have confidence in the day of judgment. Okay? He's saying the same thing. Second coming and the judgment are synchronous. The believers will have confidence when they abide in him, which means his love is perfected. Now John's point here, is that if believers abide in Christ, His love will be perfected in them, and when Yeshua appears at the second coming and judges people, they will be bold. They will be confident before Him in His presence. Now, here's the problem. Because we as preterists believe that the second coming and judgment happened in AD 70, 
How were the believers that he is talking to, how were the believers living then, confident or disappointed, or confident and fearful at his coming? Those first century believers. Did those first century believers see Christ at his coming? Did they look up and there was a little puffy cloud and the Lord's surfing on the cloud? He's coming on the clouds and they said, I feel bold before him. You know, and they ran up to him. Did they see him? No. The Bible makes it clear his presence was made known in judgment. Again, you go back to Isaiah 19. You see the idea of God's presence being known in a judgment. The judgment was the judgment of Jerusalem, the temple. By the Roman army, God said, I'm done with this system. I'm coming against this system. This system's over. We're moving into the new covenant. So, if Christ was not visible at the second coming, how were believers either bold or fearful at His coming? Here's how I see it. Okay, I see the respect of boldness or fear as something that takes place after the second coming at the Bema Seat Judgment. Now listen, our eternal salvation is an entirely free gift which can never be lost. The New Testament makes plain that the believer must give an account, though, of himself for his Christian life in the presence of God. I think most Christians don't get this or don't think about it or don't believe it today. They don't think we're going to have to stand before God. I think the Bible says we will. Let's look at a text, Romans 14. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? He's writing to Christians and he's talking about Christian brothers. Or you, why do you despise your brother? Then he says this, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. In other words, why are you judging? We're going to stand before God. God's the one who's going to judge. You don't need to be judging your brother. You don't need to be worrying about what he's doing. You worry about yourself. We're going to stand before God. For as it is written, he says, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. And every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Paul is speaking here to Roman believers. He has a similar message to the believers in Corinth. He says this, 2 Corinthians 5.10, We must all appear before the judgment seat. That again is Bema of Christ. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now in the context... It is clear that in both incidents, Paul is addressing Christians, not unbelievers. Unlike the great white throne judgment, which is a judgment for unbelievers, the Bema Seat of Christ is not for the purpose of condemnation. Christ has already become our condemnation. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you trusted Christ, you will never be condemned, because Christ bore your condemnation. So the Bema is not a judgment of condemnation. It is not a determiner of salvation. There's two purposes for the Bema seat. First, according to Romans 14, 10-14, believers are to, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. We're going to give an account. We're going to stand before God, we're going to give an account. Give an account is an expression often used for the keeping of financial records. You know, you keep records. So you can give an account to the accountant. It is to Yahweh that we have to answer to for what kind of life we're lived. As a Christian. See, I think people think, well, if you're a Christian, you're good. You can just do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. It does matter. It matters in this life because God chastens those He loves. 
And it's going to matter in a future life because you're going to stand before God and you're going to answer. And you're going to go before God and you're either going to be fearful because my life didn't quite add up, Lord, to what you had called me to, or you're going to be bold. Now, second function of the Bema Seat of Christ is that God is rewarding for service and good deeds so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done. People, we're going to receive rewards, blessings, benefits for what we have done in the body. This is not an isolated teaching. When Christ talks about His second coming, He says this, Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with you. I'm going to repay each one, what? For what He's done. That's not talking about salvation. You don't earn salvation. In other words, how you live, people, is important. As a Christian, you belong to God. You're in union with Him. Now you're called to live a holy, righteous life. You're called to abide in Him to live like Christ. Christ's death frees us from the fear of condemnation at the great white throne. We'll never stand there. Our abiding life, though, will free us from fear of shame at the Bema Seat. Now, I believe that the Bema Seat takes place for us at death. Okay? The judgment started in AD 70. For us, when we die, we stand before God. Now, confidence is one of the consequences of having an intimate fellowship with God. And we can have confidence both now and confidence to meet Yeshua when we die, and also confidence in prayer. You know, prayer is a coming before God. And if you come before God and you're like, you got your head down, you're like, God, I know I have no right to speak to you at all. You know, you should just, lightning should strike me right now. Or it's a difference when you come before God and say, Father, I'm so excited to be in your presence. You know, God, I'm having a problem here. Would you help me with? And you have confidence because you're in fellowship. First John 3.21, he said, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us. We've got confidence before God. You know what it means to for your heart to condemn you? You go to God in prayer and you, your conscience is saying, why would you bother praying, you scumbag? Look how you lived all the, you know, and you just get this, oh yeah, Lord, you're right. And you just feel bad in His presence because you're not being who He's called you to be. Well, John goes on in our text to say, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as He is, so are we in this world. Now, John uses the word world throughout this epistle in many different ways. Here, almost certainly, it relates to the natural world in which we live right now. We're in the natural world, which is distinct from our Heavenly Father who lives in the spiritual world. Okay? So, as He is, so are we in this world. What does He mean, so as He is, so are we? This, believers, is not talking about your position in Christ. Sometimes, He talks about this, about being like Christ, and He is talking about our position. Because we're righteous before God. If you've trusted Christ, you are righteous because you have His righteousness. That's the only righteousness that will ever get anybody into heaven. I don't think that's what he's talking about here. All right? He's talking about abiding here. And he's saying we have confidence before God because we are abiding in Him. We're loving our brothers and sisters. In other words, we're living in obedience to our Father. We're walking in fellowship with Him. And so the basis of our confidence is our practical conformity to His image. And you know when you were a kid and you went to your parents, if you were just the perfect kid, you'd have no problem going to your parents and say, hey, Dad, I really would like this, or I really would like this. But when you're not doing, you know, you've been a real brat. And then you go, hey, Dad, can I? No, not a chance. Okay? 
Listen, the world cannot see Yeshua. And our calling is to make Him visible through our abiding love. We're to do that as we live in close fellowship with the Father. Listen, let me, let me give you something and think about this for a minute. We are to Him what He was to the Father in the days of His flesh. We are to Him, we are to be to Him now as He was to the Father in the days of His flesh, which was what? The visible image of the invisible God. That's what Yeshua was. Yeshua said, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He was the visible image of the invisible God. That's what we are to be, people. We are to be the visible image of the invisible God. And when we're living like that, we have confidence. He goes on to say, there's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Listen, perfect love, again, mature love, complete love. This is you when you're living the way God has called you to live. Alright? You have perfect love. And you don't have fear. There's no fear of going before your Father. There's a boldness. There's a confidence. Now, this verse 17, this verse 18 is the exact negative of 17. 17 says that when love is perfected in us, we have confidence. Verse 18 says that we are not perfected in love. We don't have confidence. All right? We fear. There's no fear in love. If you are loving God and loving your brother, there's no fear there of coming before God. Now, listen, he is not saying here that we should not fear God in the sense of reverence. You know, we get confused on that. We we hear the word fear and we think of, you know, terror. Okay, that's not what he's talking about. Although at times people were in terror before God. Okay? And if you're not living right, you're going to probably experience terror. All right? But listen, there's a sense that there should always be a reverence. I don't know about you. Sometimes I read the Psalms and I think they are so bold in their language. God, listen to me when I call you. I'm like... Who are you telling God what to do? You know, I mean, I read it and I feel like cringing, you know, like, man, they're awful bold. There's a proper sense, though, of fearing God. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God. Keep His commandments. 1 Peter 2, 17, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. The fear that John writes about here is not the appropriate reverence that we should have before the holy God. It's a kind of fear that is punishing. And that's what he says. Fear has to do with punishment. And what this... We can translate this. Fear is punishment. You know when you're fearful of something, that fear itself is a punishment. You're like, oh, that's... I hate that fear. You know, people who have phobias or fears, it's punishing. They can't do certain things. They can't go certain places. You know, some people are afraid to leave their house because they have a fear of everything. That is punishing. Fear involves punishment. The word used here for punishment, colossus, it's a rare word. It's only used one other time. And that's here in Matthew 25, 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous, the life eternal. Because this is the only other place it's used, People want to take this word, punishment, and say, see, this is for the lost. Because that's exactly how Matthew uses it. I agree, that's how Matthew uses it. Does that mean that John has to use that same word the way Matthew does? First of all, Matthew adds the word eternal to it. Okay? John does not. Alright? There's also the verb form is found in 2 Peter 2.9. And the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Now, so you can see those two times are 
you know, negative. Uh, commenting on this, Colin Krauss again writes, Punishment, Colossus, is found in only one other place in the New Testament, Matthew 25, 46. The words with which Yeshua concludes the parable of the sheep and the goats. Punishment there is what God meets out to the unrighteous on the day of judgment. Punishment here in 1 John is also the punishment to be met out to the unrighteous. Why? Because if one writer used the word one way, do they all use it that same way? Context is really important here. And again, John doesn't use eternal here. It's a punishment. He's talking about, Matthew's talking about punishment that lasts forever. John's talking about punishment that comes from fear. All right? Eternal punishment does not fit the context of John's use. John is writing about believers abiding and therefore not being fearful. I think we understand this in a practical level. You know, let's just take your boss. You know, you're not, you don't mind being called into a meeting with your boss when you're doing a great job. Right? You're like, you walk in, you're like, hey boss, what's happening, man? I'm doing a good job for you, right? I mean, you do have confidence. I had a boss call me in. When I was working for a church, pastor called me in. He says, hey, um, you know, he started questioning me on some things. I said, when you hired me, didn't you say you would leave me alone as long as I got results? He said, I did say that. I said, am I getting results? He said, yes. I said, leave me alone. I had confidence because I was doing what he wanted me to do. So I wasn't afraid. You need me because I'm doing, accomplishing what you hired me to do. So therefore, you're happy. You know, but when you don't, you know, when the boss could be better off if you weren't even there, you don't have that confidence to go into them. Well, this is confidence before God. And when you're living a righteous life, when you're abiding in Christ and love is being demonstrated to you, there's boldness. There's boldness. And in the context of the chapter on the Lord's Supper, Paul writes this, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. So will we not be condemned along with the world? He is writing to believers and he's telling them that discipline, the sense of pain that we experience from fear, is designed to benefit us. Because when you experience that fear, you're like, I've got to change some things here. I don't want this fear. Whoever fears, he says, has not been perfected in love. You know why you're afraid? Because love is not complete in you. You're not abiding in Christ, that means. It means that God's love is not flowing from you to other believers. So therefore, you have a fear. Because we already talked about perfected, and that's what that means. But when we're abiding, we have no fear. We're living as He's called us to do, and there is a boldness. That's an awesome feeling, people, to come before the living God with boldness. Not shame. Not with your head down. Not fearful. But He says, if you're going to love... This is just another... He's trying to motivate these believers to be in fellowship, okay? Live like you're called to live. And He's telling them, someday... We're going to stand before God. You're going to have to answer. You're going to have to tell God. You know, and see how good your excuses sound then. You know? God, I would have really loved to have read your Bible, but I only had 24 hours in each day. There wasn't enough time in the day. And God will apologize because He said, I should have made your day 36 hours. Right? No. It's a matter of what we do with the time we have. Not how much time God's given us. All right? He goes on to say, we love because He first loved us. All right, now we love here. All right, this is, there's a lot of different manuscripts here that deal with this in different ways. For example, the Unical Greek manuscript adds God here. We love God. Uh, the King James uh, majority text write, we love Him. Um, one of the, what is it? Oh, the Vulgate. 
we love one another. And so they'll all argue about what should be here. Well, the USB 4, which is, when you're talking about manuscripts, this is to evaluate different manuscripts. USB 4 gives the verb only. In other words, we love. Just that. Nothing else. An A rating. In other words, this is for certain what was written in the manuscript. We love. So you can put God in there. You can put one another in there. You can put him. Put anything you want in there because it's all, yeah, we love, we know. We love, whether it be God, one another, all of them, because he first loved us. John's point in the context is if we love others to any extent with a genuine biblical love, we need to remember that we do that because God first loved us. That's why we do it. Again, he's repeating what he said in verse 10, and this is love not that we have loved God. He loved us. People, here's what he's saying. Get this. God always takes the initiative. He loved us while we were enemies, and as we abide in Him, His love is perfected in us. Our love is a fruit of the Spirit. It's a product of His Spirit working in and through us. In verse 20, he says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother... He's a liar. If anyone says, now this is the seventh time in this epistle John has said that. Seven times he deals with claims that are not true. This is a third class conditional sentence which meant potential action. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. But if you say this, now he's brought this up in chapter 1, verse 6, verse 8, verse 10, chapter 2, verse 4, verse 6, and 9. And like those former statements, this one almost certainly has the author's opponents in view. They're saying things that aren't true. They claim to love God, but they fail to love their fellow members in the Christian community, and therefore, he says, they don't love God. Now, look what he says here in verse 4. He says, if anyone says, I know him. Again, know him is an intimate relationship, the same thing as loving him. So he's saying the same. Again, John just keeps repeating himself, and he wants us to get it. For John, knowing God involves living in fellowship. It's loving. These are parallel. All right? No here is again a synonym for loving God. For John, loving obedience is a natural result of living in fellowship with God. He's talking about our communion here. He's not talking about our union. Our union is permanent, unchangeable. Our communion fluctuates. All right? He says, I love God and hates his brother. He's a liar. Now, some say calling him a liar essentially brands them as unbelievers. And that has to be true, right? Because no believer ever lies. <laughs> people refer to John 14.6 where Yeshua says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And they say, Christ uh, you know, is in them. They can't be lying. So if they're lying, they're, they're not Christians at all. And, you know, that's, that's not what he's saying here at all. Okay? Not at all. He says, For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. Now this is often to take taken to mean that it's much harder to love an invisible God than it is to love your brother or sister whom you can see. But John doesn't say that love for God is more difficult than love for others. Rather, love for God without love for others is impossible. You can't do it. If you're not loving some your brothers and sisters, you do not love God. You say, oh, I do love God. No, and listen, I've used this on people, okay? Because I've had people say, oh, I love God. And I'm like, no, you don't. And boy, they get little bent out of shape when you say that to them. But I say, not according to the Scriptures. What do you mean? Well, the Bible says if you don't keep His commandments, you don't love Him. If you don't love your brother, 
You don't love Him. See, it doesn't matter what you say. But when people say, I love God, what they mostly mean is, I have a nice feeling towards God. He makes me kind of tingly when I think about Him. All right? That's not what the Bible's talking about. Okay? You can't claim to love the invisible God and not love the God that's in His people. It's absurd. So it's only reasonable then to say abiding believers are characterized by loving the way God loves, which is sacrificial, which is selfless. So John is saying that genuine love for God necessarily would show itself in observable love for others. And if you don't practice sacrificial, committed love to others, you're revealing that you really don't love God. Yeshua said the world could measure our status as disciples by the measure of our love for one another. By this, he said, all people will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Now again, people want to take disciple and make it just be a Christian. That's not what he's saying here. They don't know you're a Christian by your love. Sometimes you might not love. You could still be a Christian. They know you're a Christian by your faith. But they say, you'll know you're a disciple by your love. Spurgeon said this, There is no exception to this rule. If a man loves not God, neither is he born of God. That is not what John is saying. But many people want to make it that. Okay? He says, show me a fire without heat, then show me regeneration that does not produce love to God. Well, if regeneration produces love, why did they spend so much time in the Bible telling us to do it? All you got to do is be, he should have just said, be saved, and all this will happen. It doesn't happen. He's telling believers, this is how you're to live. You're to love one another. And 421, he says, this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must love his brother. This verse is summarized the chapter. Love is a non-counterfeitable evidence that we're abiding. Now here John picks up a major theme from the Last Supper discourse in the fourth gospel where Yeshua stresses to His disciples, love for Him must express itself in obedience to His command, especially the command to love. Yeshua told them, a new commandment I give you. You love one another. They said, that's not new. We were told through the Old Testament to love each other. Here's what's new. Just as I've loved you. You also are to love one another. Then He says, if you love Me, you will keep My commandment. So if you don't love Me, you won't keep my commandment. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. I love my brother because he's been bought with a price, the price of the precious blood of the Lord. The Lord died for them, so I'm to love them. I love my brother because his name is written in the Lamb's book of life and I'm going to spend eternity with them. I love my brother because I love the Lord. And if I love the Lord who is love, I'm going to love those whom he loves. Okay? Back to verse 4, 2, 4, he says, whoever says, I know him, doesn't keep his commandment, is a liar. If you know God, which is a term for abiding, you'll live in obedience to his command. And the primary command he's stressing here is that we love one another. And that's when the Lord was, you know, he said, they came to him, they said, Lord, what's the greatest commandment? Now, the Jews graded commandments by their importance because you want to keep the important ones first and, you know, then down the line. Some commands seem to contradict one another. So they said, what's more important? Which is the great commandment? What did he say? Love God. All your heart, soul, mind, strength. Second one, just like it. Love your neighbor yourself. That's it. But see, we could make it one command because if you love God, you've got to love your neighbor. And if you're loving your neighbor, you're loving God. 
That's what it is. He said all the commandments can be boiled down to this. Love God, love your neighbor yourself. Believers, we will have boldness, we will have confidence before God in prayer. And when we meet Him at the judgment seat, the bema, if we live in love, if God's love has perfected in us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. People, you can't be in an intimate relationship with God. You can't be abiding in God if you hate your brother. Now, John, you know, he doesn't mince words here. It's either love or hate for him. That's it. No middle ground. You either love him or you hate him. That's all there is. Okay? Believers, the only way we love God in response to his love for us is to love one another. So if you want to show God, if you're thankful for God's saving you, if you're thankful that He made you His child, the way to demonstrate that gratitude is through loving those who He loves. Now I told you before we started this study, this is going to be tough in some places. This chapter 4 is brutal. Okay? Because we read it and we're like, and if you want to make chapter 4, if you want to make abiding be, you know, you're a Christian or not a Christian, then there's very few Christians out there. Okay? But this is a call to us. This is a wake-up call to us. This is what God wants from us. And it doesn't matter what the rest of the church does. This is a call to us. This is a call to you. This is a call to me. We're to live in such a way that the unbelievers see the unseen God in our lives. Not when it's convenient. All the time. And too often, we look so much like them, they don't see anything in our lives. We people are the visible image. We are to be the visible image of the invisible God. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the opportunity, Lord. This book has been brutal in places. But I pray that by Your Spirit You would convict us where we need convicting, Lord. You'd help us to realize that someday we will stand before You. We will answer for what You've given us and how we've lived. May we have boldness, Lord. May we have no fear as we walk in love. Thank you, Lord, for your patience with us. Amen. Okay. Yes, Anthony. So, if you agree or disagree, let me ask you this. Uh, loving as what we was just taught, do you think that can be supernaturally done in some cases, or something that we have to work on <coughs> striving for we can't do this on our own. Okay, there's no way you can do it on your own. But but that doesn't mean you like you get the Keswick philosophy of let go and let God. I can't do it, so God, go ahead and do it. I'll you know I'll just watch you. No, there is involvement on your part. Your involvement is spending time in the Word, so that God has a, a handle on which to steer you and direct you. It, you know, it's living in obedience to His commands. It's working on living in close fellowship with Him. As you do that, He can supernaturally work through you. Again, the fruit of the Spirit, the product that the Spirit brings is love. He brings it to those who are abiding in Him. Okay. My second part of my question was, is, is kind of like on the other side, when you had showed on the screen, Revelation, was it 2212 or 2412, and the repaying and stuff like that in the theme of the So do you... So it's, have you heard the term of it's whatever your works or whatever, if it, if it can withstand the fire? In other words, if your works burn right. in the, you know, 
Well, that passage in Corinthians about wood, hay, and stubble, I, I, that is strictly dealing with the apostles, I believe, and there's a reason for that. I don't have time okay. to get into it all now, but, okay. you know, but the idea, yes, you are going to stand before God and be evaluated on your life. Okay. God's given you something really important. He wants you to use it. Mm-hmm. And someday he'll evaluate you on how you've done. Okay. So how you live matters. I'm confused on the verse that you just brought up. How do you switch from he's talking to them and he's coming quickly and his reward is with them to now we're going to the Dima seat and however many years I get that? Okay, that's a good question. So in Revelation, he is talking to his first century audience. Okay, what's going to happen to them? All right, he's going to bring a reward for them. But there's other places like I read in Romans. Okay, we're all going to stand. Not just them, all of us are going to stand before the Bema. All right, the Bema is a reward platform where we come forward and our works are evaluated. So that is for everybody. That is not, you know, just the first directed towards the first century audience. Some text we have to look and we have to evaluate. Now, does this apply to us or is this just for the first century? Okay. They didn't see Christ at his coming, but when they died, they faced him. The same is true for us. When we die, we face him, the beam of seat, and give an account. He told the Roman Christians that. He told the Corinthian Christians that same thing. You're going to give an account for how you've lived. I don't think that strictly, you know, meant for first century. And the rest of us doesn't matter how we live. You know, I mean, because some people try to use that argument. Okay, audience relevance. He told them to love. That's them, not us. No. No. What is the time frame on that that says, you know. And, and Cheryl, what I'm saying is at the judgment that, you know, they were said at the judgment, you'll have boldness. They didn't. There wasn't a physical thing that they saw at that time. It didn't happen until after they died. <laughs> Which is true for us. Okay, Bob Kirchank writes, uh, David, did you get the memo? <laughs> Mellow only means about to in non-eschatological passages. <laughs> He's being facetious, people. We know this because it means something else in the eschatological ones. I have to go. I'm getting dizzy from reasoning in this circle. <laughs> and that's the thing, you know, people, they say, well, you know, mellow doesn't really, what does it mean that? Why does it not mean that? Look at all the lexicons. That's what it means. About to happen. Everything was about to happen in the first century. Judgment, resurrection, second coming. Dora. So getting back to love, David, some of us weren't raised in a loving home. Some of us didn't go to a loving church. And some of us didn't have the opportunity to be loved in the community. Um, so when you become saved, to understand this love of God is truly miraculous. <laughs> but exercising it is tough because you don't know what that means. Exactly. And it takes experiences to go, wow, this is love. Right. And that's, you know, and see, our Father knows this. He, he brought us each through the situation He wants us to come through. The thing is, again, it's supernatural. No, we can't do it. But the more we grow in our Christian love, the more, and the more we grow closer to our Lord, we see this is what He expects of us. This is how we're to live. This is how we're to love. And we grow in it. Yes, a lot of us, you know, haven't had that in the past. We don't know what love be about. You know, we had a girl come in our youth department, um, she was 13 years old, and she came in on the bus. And when she came in, Kathy gave her a hug. We found out later, she goes, that's the first time I was ever hugged in my life. 
13 years old. She, she didn't experience love. And so that to her was, when she came to the church, was so eye-opening. These people seemed to like me. Love is powerful. But we learn to love from our Father. Not, you know, it's not man's love. Man's love is so totally different, you know. Anybody else? Man's love is self-centered. Well, that's, that's right. It's what will I get out of this, you know. How will it benefit me? Dan Harden says, Ken Gentry used to agree about Mellow, about to be, but apparently didn't like where it led him. <laughs> That's the problem. You know, if you have some blocker up that you, I can't go there. Well, you know, you should be able to go wherever the Bible leads you. Because it's the Bible we care about, not everything else. Uh, Chris Peterson says, Wilson's hammer and nail analogy could just as easily apply to futurists. If you wield the futurist hammer, every eminence passage looks like a futurist nail. <laughs> and that's true, you know. Again, you know, the problem with preterism is it has great explanatory power, okay? So that's our problem. We, we know how to explain things, and that's not really a problem, people, okay? That's a benefit. That's what we want to do. trying maybe in my own strength to do that um, and occasionally surrendering to the spirit and it happening and just a little amazed but when we get to our judgment and there's nothing left of my love or what I was supposed to do that still under Christ and still as righteous as him, right? That righteousness will never change. Okay? You're not answering for your righteousness. You're answering for your life and what have you done with it. Okay? You're there at the Bema. You'd never get to the Bema if you weren't righteous. Okay? Mm -hmm. You're you're in, you're gonna make it. Some people that's all they seem to care about, you know? I'd like to be I'd like my life to be pleasing to the Lord. That's what this is about, people. Okay?